Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School here at Trinity Presbyterian Church. Um, we are starting a brand new series, and it's very exciting. You can tell it's exciting because I told you it was exciting. <laughs> um, so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be going through uh, different people in uh, American history that were influential in Christianity. This influence might be negative. This influence might be good. Sometimes it's, well, most of the time it'll probably be a little of both. But, uh, but I am kicking this off um, today with a Dutchman. And uh, so that's kind of exciting. Uh, it made me think about why people say, uh, let's go Dutch for lunch or something. We're, we're Dutch people considered cheap. Okay, so that's maybe where that comes. Frugal, yes, frugal. Wise with their money, knowing when you should uh, have someone else pay for their own lunch. All right, well, <laughs> we're going to talk about a Dutch guy named... Cornelius Van Til. And so uh, I'm kind of excited about it. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, I'm going to give some uh, information as to why he might be interesting, and then we'll talk a little bit about him. All right, well, let's start with a word of prayer, and then we will get going. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, are grateful to you for this time we have that we can um, think on uh, men that you have used, uh, in, uh, even in our own history here in America. We thank you for the way you use people and the way uh, some have given themselves as servants to you. You have used them as if the Holy Spirit was wearing them like a cloak. And we are grateful that you have uh, been gracious to us. We pray for uh, wisdom and discernment as we go through this series, even as we talk uh, today, that we might learn something and that we might uh, maybe be, even be inspired uh, to broaden our reading. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, so what's the goal of some of this stuff that we're doing? Um, it might vary as to what the goal might be. It might be that uh, we might do some additional reading <clears throat> that maybe you haven't thought of uh, to do. I don't know about Cornelius Van Til uh, as far as reading goes. Uh, some of you might be ready for him. <laughs> and it's not because, you know, he, you know, it's like only smart people can read him. It's, uh, he communicated in a way that you would have to already assume a lot of things. Um, he was writing for um, seminary students, so there were some things that he was assuming were already known before you even read him, and so a lot of people find him very confusing to read, and, that's, um, and that happens with some of the people we're going to be talking about. So... Uh, why would someone like this guy named Cornelius Van Til be important? And I want to start out with this. Um, oftentimes, our context, the world we live in, 
has ideas. And these ideas become so a part of our thinking that we don't even know that we're assuming certain things. For instance, we talk about gender all the time, right? Uh, because of our context today, we, we, even as Christians, we talk about, well, you know, if someone assigns themselves to one gender or another gender, and we talk about gender, which, which is okay because we kind of know what we mean. But the, the term gender really isn't correct. Uh, it's sex. Um, there's two sexes. Gender is a term that has just most recently been introduced, which really refers to language, um, how we assign something as neutral as language, gender. So you have, um, uh, like in Spanish, right? You have, um, what's, what's, the, what's the three genders? You have neuter, right? And then you have uh, masculine, and then you have feminine. And we're assigning these genders to language which is otherwise not the sex of male or female. Does that make sense? And so what we've done in our culture is we've kind of assigned this idea of gender which can be assigned to something that's otherwise sexless, if I can put it that way. Why am I bringing all that up? <laughs> I'm bringing all that up because these ideas are so much a part of our world that we don't even sometimes realize the connections that are actually there. Does that make sense? We don't realize we're ad what we're adopting sometimes when we use uh, language or philosophies or ideas and things like that. Um, and this is part of the world we live in even today where we live in a world where we kind of have accepted some philosophies. When you look at Christians today, the average Christian, which would represent millions of people here in America, and just talking about Americans, American Christians, millions of Americans kind of already view the world as something that exists as this objective thing, and then we add God to it. Does that make sense? And then God, who is like any other person that we might meet, has his point of view that we need to address, and then maybe even decide what we think about God's point of view, right? In, in accordance to our point of view that we already have about the world. Does that make sense? And this is, the, this is the, the kind of thinking that most, I would say, most American Christians think. This came about, and this is what makes Cornelius Van Til so important. This came about, this uh, thinking this way. I mean, well, you know, we're in Sunday school. This isn't necessarily a message. Uh, what do you think of that kind of thinking? That we kind of live in a world that we, you know, we experience and we have this kind of objective view of the world and then we kind of add God to it. We kind of see 
this religious side of us, if I can put it that way. Bob. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Maybe the problem is not him, but you. Yeah. But it's very important for us to keep the boat done. Yeah. Okay. So so Bob brought up a good a good point. Bob ta- talks about how people experience the world even in suffering, right? And isn't that isn't that what you're going to get a lot when you talk to Christians and their view of God? They're going to think about suffering and how they have experienced suffering and then how they have to adapt God into accepting God again, right? Into the suffering they have had. This is a big issue on, in Christian universities where you have a lot of young people coming in that are concerned about how the Bible talks about homosexuality. Why? Because they have friends who have come out as homosexual and their friends seem to be suffering. And why would God allow this kind of suffering? Wouldn't it make more sense that God kind of is okay with it but just doesn't like them, uh, like actually practicing their homosexuality, but this homosexual feeling they have, this effeminate way about the young men is kind of acceptable because they have had this connection, this experience with this person. They love this person. And how can God be so mean to them as to rejecting their effeminate way and these desires and so then God has to be adapted like you would adapt any person, right? This uh, came about, uh, it started with something called the Enlightenment. Have we all heard of the Enlightenment? The Enlightenment was this idea that, it was a promise, if I can put it this way. It was a promise that science could really be the answer to truth because science is objective, Religion is not objective. They're not saying religion is false, right? The Enlightenment wasn't to set out that religion was false, just that it's very subjective. And that science can provide for us a way for objectivity. Because after all, you know, I'm observing the world, and then I'm taking notes, right? Francis Bacon taught us to record things, right? Locke told us to think about the world in an objective way, not to have interference of, uh, you know, church and, you know, how you were brought up. That becomes an interference. You put those things aside and you become objective. And so the Enlightenment promises that if we just objectively observe the world, take notes, create experiments, we can achieve truth. And all of this was based on this idea of this objective way of viewing the world. Well, along came a guy named David Hume. David Hume was a really smart guy. He was Scottish. 
So that tells you something. All right, smart guy. He wasn't liked very much. Uh, he was, in fact, so, so uh, how do I put it, um, unpopular that he, he, he couldn't be hired. They, he would uh, be hired for a little while to be a professor somewhere, and he just couldn't get along with anybody. But he had this idea that this personal experience that we have, this observation in science, this what we call empirical research and all that sort of stuff, is not objective. But rather, the very act of observing the world is a very subjective thing. It's so subjective that this idea of cause and effect, which is at the heart of every experiment in science, this idea of cause and effect can't even be proven. It's this pre-existing idea that we impose upon the world. Well, what do you do with that, right? This led to what we call skepticism. And a lot of people started to get really, really skeptical because if science can't even help us, then what can help us? And this guy came along that saved the, saved the day because skepticism was starting to destroy and corrode everything. Hume was getting these great arguments against Christianity. I mean, really strong arguments against Christianity. Uh, talking about how the miracles could not uh, have possibly have happened. That we can't know anything true or false about the Bible. It's a ridiculous idea. I mean, just pounding Christianity with the skepticism. Well, this guy came along that kind of saved the day for Christians. And I'm putting that in sarcastic quotation marks. He did not save the day. Uh, but his name was Immanuel Kant. And Immanuel Kant came along with this idea that you can have this rational belief called religion. And you can have this very rational belief in the world. Now, the world is more, more real because you can experience it and you have these pre-existing categories in your head, which is a good thing. And so when you experience the world, you categorize it in your head like a filing cabinet, and that's how the world works, but religion doesn't get to be out here. Religion is stuck in your filing cabinet. It's fine to have your religion, and that your religion can really be real. It's just stuck in your head because you can't experience it. So the world out here is really real, because you can experience it and you put it in your filing cabinet. Religion is really important and good, but all you have is your filing cabinet. Does that make sense? Yes. Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. Now, if, if, if you have a Kantian scholar listening to this lecture, he would say that's oversimplifying Kant, and I should spend like 30 lectures explaining the joys of Immanuel Kant. But, uh, but we're not doing that. Um, but yeah, I think, I think Kant would say that there has to be some kind of... Um, he said, I think he would say it's completely rational to believe that. Um, 
I don't know if he would say he believed it, but he would say it's rational to believe that God put the filing cabinet in your head. Um, but that would just be a belief. There's no way to empirically understand that. You would just have to keep that in your filing cabinet as one of your beliefs, which is fine to have. It's just not out here. And he made this idea of a two, what we call a two-story view of the world. So us in this world right now where you can see me, I can see you, uh, you're pretty sure your car is still in the parking lot, uh, you're pretty sure that your kids really are in Sunday school downstairs, there's a lot of beliefs that you have because you, you walked away from your car, you sent your kids, there's these proofs that you have out in the world. And we're pretty sure about this world. But then we have the second floor, which is where we put our religion. We go upstairs every once in a while. We're upstairs right now. This is the religious part of your life. Isn't it nice to have a religious part of your life? And then when you go home, you're back to reality, right? Did I tell you about that little girl that lived on our street with the helmet? Did I tell that story in here? I don't know if it's my age or how many times I speak to people. I just don't know what stories I've told. Uh, so there was a, I'll tell it again, and please pretend that it's the first time you've heard it. Uh, so there was this little girl on our block when we lived in Toledo, Ohio. Uh, her name was Allison. And uh, she played with Danny when he was a little kid. And she was, she was this cute little kid, rode her bike up and down the street. She had this little helmet on. I think it was pink. I remember it as pink. Maybe it's just my sexist view of women. I just thought, well, it must be pink. She's a little girl. But, uh, but I'm pretty sure it was pink. And she always wore that helmet when she rode her little bike. But when her mom called her in to eat, do you remember this, honey? She would yell back at her mom and say, and tell her to shut up and tell her she's not coming in and I mean, I mean, it was really loud, too, because, you know, of course, as a kid, you don't go up and speak quietly, you know, quietly disrespectful to your parents. You want everyone to hear it. And so, uh, and so she's there, this big yelling match going on the whole time with this helmet on her head. And that just, I just didn't understand that because, <laughs> and you're probably wondering what, what's so strange about that. This is what's so strange about it. To that woman, her daughter yelling back at her, telling her to shut up, was a negotiable idea. Physics was not. Physics was real to that woman, and so that child is going to wear that helmet no matter what. But yelling back at the mom to shut up, well, that's, you know, she's, she's just a kid. <laughs> so physics was real. But obedience and respect to parents was optional. That really shows to me a two-story view of the world. She was sure about physics. If the kid falls off the bike, she might get hurt, so that helmet's going to be on no matter what. And so the kid, you know, somehow that was a non-negotiable in the house, so every time she got on that bike, she wore that stinking helmet, and kids do not wear helmets freely. Uh, you gotta, you got to get a really cool helmet that looks like Spider-Man or something like that to coax them into wearing that stuff. Uh, and so for some reason, this was important to her. And this is the two-story view of Christianity, right? We live in this world 
where, where everything's practical and we, you know, we live our life and then we come to church and now that's the spiritual world and we kind of invite God in and out of our lives, right? This is something that Andrew has been uh, pounding into us about prayer. Prayer will tell you how much of a two-story view you have of the world, right? If you get to supper time and you realize, oh, I haven't had any time in prayer today, you're living a two-story life where you have your religion over here and your practical life over here. We can, I think, thank Kant at least for um, creating an academic view of a two-story life. I think it probably would have, I think it's probably most of what Christians believed anyway, but Kant made it academic and acceptable in the world, in the world of academia anyway. So this Christian worldview, this that God added, God is added to our life. Religion is a part of our life. Um, that uh, this that Scripture is good for, and this is the most important part, that Scripture is good for faith and practice. But that's it. And faith and practice really just means obeying God and knowing what God says about salvation is the limits of the Bible's use. And then I live out here where everything's pretty scientific and you know this is the really real and then I have to make the Bible be as real as I can. This is the most Christian's view of Christianity. And what makes the person I want to talk about today important is, be, is that he was one of the first to really explore that and demonstrate how terrible that view is of Christianity. His name is Cornelius Van Til, like I said before. He, is, uh, he was born, um, he, well, he's a Dutchman, so obviously... <laughs> He was, uh, his parents uh, moved uh, here to America in 1905. He was 10 years old at that time. Um, and he was not, uh, he not, not from a family of well-educated people. In fact, he was the first in his family to really go into uh, a, s- a secondary education like college. Um, he uh, ended up at Princeton for his PhD, um, and he wrote his dissertation entitled "God and the Absolute." This is where uh, he is really trying to get at uh, what an anti-Kantian idea. In other words, he's trying to get at the idea that God is not added to our world. Okay? That our Bible is not something that has to do with a part of our life, but we have other parts. He's trying to get to the idea that there is no sacred and secular in the world. That everything is in the context of God. In fact, he uses this term, I think he uses it in his dissertation, that God is our environment. That we don't live in an environment called the world and then God comes in and visits us. 
but rather we live in an environment of God. And that, is, uh, that can be traced back to Colossians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 1. Or not Romans, sorry, Hebrews chapter 1. Um, in Hebrews 1, let me read that very quickly for you. Hebrews 1.3. I uh, forgot my glasses today, and so <laughs> everything's just a little harder. Okay, Hebrews 1.3. And he, speaking of Christ, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things, upholds all things by the word of his power. By the word of his power. He upholds all things. By the word of his power, speaking of Christ. Again, Christ is spoken of in uh, Colossians. I really didn't think it would be that big of a problem. <laughs> it is. Colossians 1.18, or let me see, is that right? Colossians 1.18. Uh, let me start at 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This is speaking of Christ again. For by him all things were created, both the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together." Let me read that one more time. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Van Til was starting to develop this idea that God did not create the world and step back and see how things went and then helped people as they go, right? So God did not create this big machine and then is watching over you as you, as you, uh, you know, play out your life in his big machine. And if you're late for, for work and you really need those lights to turn green, God will put his finger down into the world and make those lights green so you'll be on time for work. And, and so, you know, when you need him, he'll kind of then interfere in an otherwise, you know, machine life that you live. But rather... Everything is held together. There is a constant state of God holding the world together. A constant state of every movement, every molecule being uh, not degenerating and you know, destroying everything, uh, that God is holding that in, his, in, the, in the presence, in the present tense. And so he started to develop this idea with this dissertation, but it, it developed more as he became a teacher. Now, in, uh, so he finished his dissertation in 1927. He became a pastor after that, uh, but just for one year. Um, in 1928, he was called over to Princeton to teach apologetics. 
Now it's at this time that Princeton, uh, Princeton was becoming um, pretty liberal. What had happened was there was a power move by the PCUSA. PCUSA was getting pretty liberal. So what they did was they, did, they made this big change in the board and put a bunch of liberals on the board, then hired a bunch of liberal faculty. And the way the liberals work um, is that they, they just want to make room for, for, for liberal ideas. They're not saying the conservatives, they're not saying the conservatives have to leave. They're just saying, with the conservatives, we should be broad and allow other people with other ideas as well. And this is what was going, in, going on in the PCUSA. Uh, they were saying that it's fine if you interpret the Westminster Confession of Faith in a very, um, in a very conservative way, that's fine. But for those that want to interpret it a different way, we should make room for them. Okay. And so a guy named Machen uh, said, enough of that. Um, we need to leave the PCUSA. Well, the PCUSA had their claws into, a, into Princeton, and so they were making Princeton after their own image. Okay. I want you, I mean, I, is anyone noticing a connection here? You have a history of truly reformed uh, activity involves separation. Reformed, uh, part of our reformed history are people separating from denominations that are not kicking out the, the, the conservatives, but just saying, let's make room for people that see things another way. So, you all uh, probably know what I'm talking about. Yes, Bob? Why did it suddenly become so crowded without conservatives? I mean, why was the room suddenly uncomfortable because there was presumably conservative people who were around? And you can turn this completely around and say, look, you know, I don't mean to take a conservative position, but... Yeah. Yes, that's true. <laughs> yeah, and, and so, yeah, Bob brings up a good point. So, so, you know, let's just think about a minute. With the PCUSA, they were, they were saying we need, we need these other ideas to be allowed. These conservatives, you know, we like your, you know, your ideas are fine, but we need to make more room for these other ideas. What's the problem I can put it this way, with, with, with even that. Well, we're not dealing with, um, with uh, if I can put it this way, mere ideas of you know, how to do something. Um, this is about uh, moving from, when we're talking about conservative, we're talking about orthodox Christianity, as opposed to people that are trying to get to something that is no longer Christianity. And... Um, and so what they're really saying is, let's make room for something that isn't Christianity anymore. 
That's really what they're saying. It's not really saying, well, there's some, some people have uh, the idea that, uh, you know, Jesus is knocking on your door of your heart, and you are responsible for letting him in, and other people say, no, only God does that. And those are important ideas to mess with, right, and to talk about. But this is going way beyond even something like that. This is going into something that isn't even Christianity anymore. And what is, what is interesting is that, you know, your own pastor has led you out of and helped us lead out of a denomination that was doing that exact same thing. Where it's, it was beginning to say, let's make room for something that isn't Christianity anymore. With Revoice in the PCA. That is not Christianity. And they're saying, let's make room for it. And your pastor did a very reformed thing and said, we can't stay in something that says, let's make room for something that's no longer Christianity, right? And we look back at the PCUSA and you think, shame on those people that said, no, this isn't a big deal, right? And so with all that happening, that was flooding into... The school, of course, right, of Princeton. And you can see where Princeton is today, right? Uh, the liberal idea, uh, when you introduce something that's no longer Christianity into something that's supposed to be Christian, uh, you see very quickly uh, the, the destruction that happens. So Van Til was asked to start, uh, to help start a new school uh, with his friend Machen, who was also teaching at Princeton. What they did is uh, several Princeton guys said, let's get out of here. And so they moved from New Jersey to Philadelphia and started a school called Westminster Theological Seminary. And anything that moves from Jersey uh, has to be a good thing. I mean, <laughs> it is just across the river. But it is one of the few states that you get in for free, but you have to pay to get out. So think about that for a minute. All right. No, Jersey is a fine place. It's fine. Where else would people that work in New York City live uh, if there wasn't a Jersey? Okay. So <laughs> it's very expensive. Okay. Uh, so, um, so he helped in 1929 start uh, Westminster Theological Seminary and was one of the founding uh, professors there. And he revolutionized what we call apologetics. People call this view, uh, his view of apologetics, presuppositional apologetics. What few people know is that Van Til did not pick that term. Uh, that was a derogatory term uh, that was given to him by a guy named Buswell. And uh, Buswell didn't like his apologetics because they weren't Arminian enough. Uh, but anyway, uh, this idea, his idea of apologetics was to finally deal with the question of Romans 1. And I know that we already had this big apologetics class, and we dealt with Romans 1 quite a bit. But the question is, uh, in Romans 1.18, if it is true that the unbeliever suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, 
then how are we able to have a conversation with them? Have you ever thought of that? How is it possible, what common ground do we have if the unbeliever is in a constant state of hating God and in a constant state of suppressing the truth, what common ground do you even have? And Van Til was the first to really deal with that question and say, according to our mind, we have nothing in common. Our thinking is completely different. We have to have something else in common, and that is our standing in what God gave us so that we can even begin to start thinking. And that's our presuppositional idea that there really is a God. Right? There really is a God. And we know the real God, because that's what Romans 1 promises. Everyone knows the real God. It's that suppression. So now we can, we can know that they already know, and we can begin with our apologetic, knowing that they know and knowing that they're suppressing. We're not dealing with someone who is ignorant. We're dealing with a suppressor. And that changes how you do your apologetics. So he was the first to really deal with that in a way that's consistent with the Reformed uh, beliefs. He was also the first to really help Christians identify the fact that they are not living in a, in a two-story world where we are not dealing with a world where we have Christ added to our world, but rather we live in a world that is saturated with God. God is the one that holds the, the, this very roof together so it does not collapse on our head. We understand it through, through physics and all that sort of thing, and we understand how, how architecture works and how gravity works and all that sort of stuff. And we explain it that way, but in the end, the thing that is holding all of this together is the, the word of God's power. And that there is no place that you can go no thing that you can do that isn't completely and totally a religious act. Everything you do and everything you think is religious acts. They're either anti-religious or anti-God or pro-God. But you don't live in a world where you get any neutrality at all. You don't get to be neutral. You don't get to be objective. There is no objectivity. Do you understand what I mean by that? You don't get to stand back away from God and then judge him. You don't get to stand back away from God's creation and decide whether God should have or should not have done X. You can't stand behind it. You're in it. And this idea was very new to the American thought process because the American thought process is, I am an objective being that then gets to judge whether Christianity is right or wrong and I need all these proofs and all these rational ideas so that I can decide. It's insane. It's insane thinking. It's like someone being stuck in the middle of the ocean with no land in sight and decides to paddle for 40 miles in one direction so that they can get a better view of where they are. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
We think we can get behind our own presuppositions. We think we can get behind ourselves and our context in order to judge our context, but we end up still using our context to judge our context. Does that make sense? And anyone that believes that you can stand back and judge God does not understand the world they live in. It is why, it's part of the reason why we're Reformed believers, especially when it comes to salvation. No one gets to stand back and decide if they're going to follow Jesus. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, you don't get to stand back in some objectivity and decide if you're going to open the door of your heart to Jesus. You're dead. That's your context. You're a rotting corpse, and only God can come and make you alive. And so there is no getting behind the environment God has already provided and, and dwells in for its existence. And the third idea that, God, uh, that, uh, that Cornelius Van Til uh, really helped uh, develop, especially in American thinking, is this idea here. That the Bible is the foundation of your entire thinking. I'm going to say that one more time. That the Bible is the foundation of thought itself for human beings. Not just for your religious stuff, but is the foundation of thinking itself. Yes. Is this a should be or is worship? That's a good question. Yes. Um, it is an is. Uh, so Bob says, Bob's asking, is this the way it should be? Or is this just the way it is? And I'll, I'll say it's yes to both. It is the way it is, but not very many people are aware of it. And so how is it possible for me to truly understand the structure of a cell? If I'm taking a science course and I'm learning all the parts of a cell, right? how can I understand that? Well, you can understand that if you understand all the foundation that makes that leads you to that moment of understanding a cell and where a cell comes from. You have to justify the existence of the thing before you can identify its parts, right? Where do cells come from? I mean, if you don't know that question, then what are you looking at to even know the parts of it? And so scripture provides for us the possibility of being able to do math, the possibility of being able to do science and all these sort of things because scripture gives us the foundation, does that make sense, of your thinking. Um, and, I, and I tried to explain a little bit about this during our apologetics course. So if this sounds kind of strange and you're like, what on earth is he talking about? Uh, go look those up on the YouTube thing or whatever it is we use, and uh, re-watch those because we get, we get into that. Because I think it is, it is something that I think on a quiz a lot of us would say, yes, Scripture should be the foundation of our thought. But then we never really live that way. We don't really think that way. And I know this because I go to a lot of places where, you know, a lot of Christian schools, and it's like brand new to math teachers that, Scripture is the foundation of mathematics, or Scripture is the foundation of scientific thought, or Scripture is the foundation of grammar. But if we, if we really, you know, if 
what Van Til was trying to demonstrate was that without that, you're, you can't really understand anything. And remember what we talked about in our apologetics course? So then how does an unbeliever understand science and math? Because they're borrowing. They have to borrow a Christian worldview to even begin it. Right? They have to believe somewhere deep in their mind that all this really is real and that it came from something and they know where it came from. Right? But they suppress it with what? Their unrighteousness. And so what we find is that the three big ideas, if I can just leave you with this and help you remember something from Cornelius Van Til, these three big ideas are, I think, the three most important he left us with. Number one, being able to do apologetics and take total depravity seriously. Um, very few people know how to do that. Um, number two, that God is our environment. He is not added to our environment. And number three, the Bible is the foundation of our thinking. Um, he really developed those. I, those aren't brand new ideas to the universe, but he developed them uh, in a way that was very helpful, especially for American thinkers who uh, did not think this way. Um, and he was a very misunderstood guy. I mean, most of his writings are in defense of something he said that someone didn't like, and so he was defending what he was saying. And a lot of people don't want to uh, understand him. I mean, there's, a, there's books that came out in 2019. 2019 or 2020? J.V. Fesco is a professor over at RTS, wrote a book that tries to annihilate uh, Van Til, and I think he tried to annihilate him by never reading him. <laughs> um, I mean, when you look at this book, I just think, did he even read any of it? I'm not sure he did. I mean, it's so bad. Um, and I know this is on YouTube, so uh, if, uh, if people find that offensive, I would say buy Fesco's book, uh, read through it, and then read Van Til and see if it matches. Um, it won't. Um, and, but that's the kind of life he lived. He lived a life of a lot of battles. And I am telling you this, and maybe this is the last thing I can say about, about Cornelius Van Til, is that he is a good example of what it's like to live a world of, of fighting, live in a world of fighting. I think we Christians kind of like to think of ourselves living in a world of, pe of peace. And we are not living in a world of peace. Uh, we have to be fighters. I think um, our children uh, need to grow up as fighters. Um, I think if the more they see Christianity as this peaceful, um, kind of like the, the blasphemous pictures of Jesus Christ, this effeminate, long-haired, blue-eyed Christianity, of course they're going to get bored with it because it's this passive, weak thing. But Christianity is not weak. It's powerful. We're going to learn from B.B. Warfield that, it's a, that God's, even God's word is like a lion that destroys and devours. And it has to because we're in a battle and we're fighting. And Van Til understood fighting all the way till he died in 1987. He was fighting, fighting, fighting. If we're not, if we're not bringing up fighters, we're going to bring up a bunch of weak kids that passively move into the world's view. And so let that be a lesson to us from, uh, from a Dutchman. And uh, 
Let's uh, close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, are grateful to you for uh, the goodness uh, that you have shown to us through teachers, um, through, through preachers, through people that have influenced um, our, our understanding of your word. We pray, Lord, for uh, a good understanding of uh, more men as we go through this series. Uh, we pray that you will bless this. Lord, we pray that you will bless our pastor as he comes before us to speak, uh, Lord, that he will speak your words to us, and that our words will, our, our hearts will be bent before what he has to say, that we might listen as we are listening uh, to the very word of God. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.